Section 10 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Henkin, Chicago, HenkinVO.com. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 3. And part three. Martha, Countess Trotsky, a rich young widow. It was under this promising title that I had to play my part in the comedy of the great world. And I must say that the character suited me. It is no slight pleasure to get greetings from all sides, to be faded, spoiled on all hands, and overwhelmed with distinctions. It is no slight enjoyment after nearly four years' separation from the world, to come all at once into a whirlpool of all sorts of pleasures, to make the acquaintance of interesting and influential persons, to be present at some splendid entertainment almost every day, and when there, to feel yourself the center of universal attention. We three sisters had got the nickname of the Three Goddesses of Mount Ida and the Apples of Discord, which the several young Parises distributed amongst us, were innumerable. I, of course, in the dignity of my description in the list of dramatis personae, as rich young widow, was the one generally preferred. Besides, it was taken as a settled thing in our family, and even ever so little in my own inward consciousness, that I was to marry again. Aunt Mary was no longer in the habit in her homilies, of dwelling on the blessed one who was waiting for me above. For if I, in my few short years on earth that separated me from the grave, united myself to a second husband, an event desired by Aunt Mary herself, the pleasantness of the meeting again in heaven would be a good deal spoiled thereby. Everyone around me seemed to have forgotten Arno's existence, I was the only one who did not. Though time had relieved my pain about him, his image had not been extinguished. One may cease to mourn for one's dead. Mourning does not depend quite on the will. But one ought not to forget them. I looked on this dead silence about the dead, which was preserved by my entourage, as a second and additional slaughter and shrank from killing the poor fellow in my thoughts. I had made it my duty to speak every day to little Rudolph of his father, and the child had always to say in his prayers at night, God make me good and brave as my dear father Arno would have me. My sisters and I amused ourselves extremely, and certainly I not less than they. It was, so to speak, my debut in society. The first time I was introduced as an engaged girl, and a newly married woman, and so all admirers had, of course, held aloof from me. And what is a higher enjoyment in society than admirers? But, strange to say, however much I was pleased to be surrounded by a crowd of worshippers, none of them made any deep impression on me. There was a bar between them and me which was quite impassable. And this bar was what I had been erecting during my three years of lonely study and thought.
all these brilliant young gentlemen, whose interest in life culminated in sport, the ballet, the chatter of the court, or, with those who soared highest, in professional ambition, for most were soldiers, had not the faintest idea of the things which I had looked at from afar in my books, and on which my soul's life depended. That language, of which I grant I had only as yet learned the elements, but as to which I was assured that it was in that men of science would debate and ultimately decide the highest questions, that language was to them not Greek merely, but Patagonian. From this category of young folks, I was not going to select a husband. That was quite settled. Besides, I was in no hurry to give up once more my freedom, which was very pleasant to me. I managed to keep my would-be suitors sufficiently at a distance to prevent any from making an offer, and at the same time to prevent anybody in society from putting about concerning me the compromising rumor that I was laying myself out for lovers. My son Rudolph should hereafter be able to feel proud of his mother. No breath of suspicion should sully the pure mirror of her reputation. But if the case should occur that my heart should glow once more with love, and that could only be for one worthy of it, then I was fully disposed to realize the claim which my youth still had to happiness in this world, and enter into a second marriage. Meanwhile, apart from love or happiness, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. The dance, the theater, dress, I found the liveliest pleasure in all of them. But I did not for them neglect either my little Rudolph or my own education. It was not that I plunged into special studies, but I always kept Ucaron with the movement of the intellectual world by procuring all the most prominent new productions in the literature of the age and regularly reading attentively all the articles, even the most scientific, in the Revue des Deux Mondes and similar magazines. These occupations had indeed the result that the bar I had just spoken of, which cut off my inward life from the surrounding world of young men of fashion, became constantly higher. But it was right that it should be so. I would gladly have drawn into my salons a few persons from the world of literature and scholarship, but that could hardly be done in the society in which I moved. Bourgeois elements could not be mixed with what was called the Circles of Vienna, especially at that period. Since then, this exclusive spirit has somewhat changed, and it has become the fashion to open one's salons to individual representatives of art and science. At the time of which I speak, this was not the case yet. Anyone not Hofig, i.e., who could not count sixteen ancestors, was excluded thence. Our ordinary society would have been most unpleasantly surprised to have met at my house people not ennobled, and could not have hit on the right tone to converse with them. And these persons themselves would certainly have found my drawing-room, full of countesses and sportsmen, old generals and old canonesses, intolerably dull. What part could men of intellect and science, writers and artists, take in the eternally same conversation? Who had given a dance yesterday, and who would give one tomorrow? 
whether Schwarzenberg or Pellavicini or the court, what love affairs Baroness Pacher was causing, which party Countess Palfrey was opposing, how many estates Prince Croy possessed, what right the young Lady Almsey possessed to the title of Lady of Rank, whether as a festetics or a wentheim, and if a wentheim, whether by that wentheim whose mother became a Kevinhuller, etc. That was indeed the matter of most of the conversations that went on around me. Even the intellectual and educated people, some of who were really to be found in our circle, statesmen and so forth, thought themselves bound, when associated with us, the young folks who danced, to adopt the same frivolous and meaningless tone. How gladly would I often have gone to some dinner in a quiet corner at which one or two of our travel diplomatists or eloquent parliamentarians or other men of mark might express their opinions on weighty questions. But that was not feasible. I had to keep along with the other young ladies and talk of the toilettes we were getting ready for the next big ball. And even if I had squeezed into such a company, the conversations that might have just begun about the economy of nations, about Byron's poetry, about the theories of Strauss and Renan, would have been hushed. And the talk would have been, Ah, Countess Dotsky, how charming you looked yesterday at the ladies' picnic. And are you going tomorrow to the reception at the Russian embassy? Allow me, dear Martha, said my cousin, Conrad Althaus, to introduce you to Lieutenant Colonel Baron Tilling. I bowed. The introducer went away, and the one introduced did not speak. I took this for an invitation to dance, and rose from my seat with my left arm raised and bent, ready to lay it on Baron Tilling's shoulder. Forgive me, Countess, he said, with a slight smile, which showed his dazzlingly white teeth. I do not dance. Indeed, so much better, I answered, sitting down again. I had just retreated here to get a little repose, and I had requested the honor of being introduced to you, Countess, as I had a communication to make to you. I looked up in amazement. The Baron put on a very serious face. He was altogether a man who looked very serious, no longer young, somewhere about forty, with a few streaks of gray on the temples. On the whole, a prepossessing, sympathetic look. I had accustomed myself to look sharply on each new introduction with the question, Are you a suitor? And should I take you? Both questions I answered in this case with a prompt negative. The person before me had not the expression of intimate adoration, which all those are in the habit of assuming, who approach ladies with views, as the saying is, and the other question was resolved at once by his uniform. I would give my hand to no soldier a second time. That I had absolutely fixed with myself not alone because I would not be again exposed to the horrible pain of seeing my husband depart to the campaign, but because since that time I had arrived at views about war in which it would be impossible for me to agree with a soldier. Lieutenant Colonel V. Tilling did not avail himself 
of my invitation to sit beside me. I will not intrude on you long, Countess. What I have to communicate to you is not suited for a ballroom. I only wanted to ask you for permission to present myself in your house. Could you be so very kind as to fix a day and hour in which I may speak to you? I receive on Saturdays between two and four. Then your house between two and four on Saturday most likely resembles a beehive, where the honeybees are flying in and out. And I sit in the middle as queen, you would say. A very pretty compliment. I never make compliments. No more than I make honey. So the hour of swarming on Saturday does not suit me at all. I must speak to you alone. You awaken my curiosity. Let us say then tomorrow, Tuesday, at the same hour, I will be at home to you and no one else. He thanked me, bowed, and went away. A little later, my cousin Conrad came by. I called him to me, got him to sit by my side, and asked for information about Baron Tilling. Does he please you? Has he made a deep impression on you that you ask after him so eagerly? He is to be had, i.e., he is not yet married. Still, he may not be free for all that. It is whispered that a very great lady, Althaus named a princess of the royal family, holds him to herself by tender bonds, and therefore does not marry. His regimen has only recently been moved hither, and so he has not been much seen in society as yet. And he is also, it seems, an enemy of balls and things of that sort. I made his acquaintance in the nobles' club, where he passes an hour or two every day, but generally over the papers in the reading room, or absorbed in a game of chess with some of our best players. I was astonished to meet him here. However, as the lady of the house is his cousin, that explains his short appearance at the ball. He is off again already. As soon as he had taken leave of you, I saw him go out. Have you introduced him to many other ladies besides? No, only to you. But you must not imagine from that that you have brought him down at a long shot and that therefore he is anxious to know you. He asked me, could you tell me whether a certain Countess Dotsky, nee Althaus, probably a relation of yours, is here at present? I want to speak to her. Yes, I answered, pointing to you, sitting in that corner on the sofa, in a blue dress. Oh, that is she. Will you be so kind as to introduce me? That I did with much pleasure without any idea that I might be ruining your peace of mind thereby. Don't talk such nonsense, Conrad. My peace is not so easily disturbed. Tilling, of what family is he? I have never heard the name before. Aha, you will not confess. Perhaps he is the favored one. I have tried, by the exercise of all my power of witchery, to penetrate into your heart for the last three months but in vain, and now this cold lieutenant colonel, for, let me tell you, he is cold and without feeling, came, saw, and conquered. Of what family is Tilling, do you say? 
I believe, of Hanoverian origin, but his father before him was in the Austrian service. His mother is a Prussian. You must surely have noticed his North German accent. Yes, he speaks most beautiful German. Of course, everything about him is most beautiful. Althaus got up. Well, I have had quite enough now. Permit me to leave you to your dreams. I will try to entertain myself with ladies who may appear most beautiful in your eyes. There are plenty such. I left the ball early. My sisters could remain behind under Aunt Mary's guard, and there was nothing to detain me. The desire for dancing had left me. I felt tired and longed for solitude. Why? Surely not to have the opportunity for thinking about tilling without interruption. Still, it seemed so, for it was about midnight that I enriched the red book by transferring into it the conversation above set down and added the following observations. An interesting man is tilling. The great lady who is in love with him is thinking about him now, or perhaps at this moment he is kneeling at her feet, and she is not so lonely, so lonely as I am. Ah, to love anyone so entirely and inwardly. Not Tilling, of course. I do not know him even. I envy the princess, not on account of Tilling, but on account of her being beloved, and the more passionately, the more warmly she is attached to him. So much the more I envy her. My first thought on waking was once more, Tilling. And naturally, for he had made an appointment with me for today, on account of some important communication. Not for a long time had I felt so excited as I was about this visit. At the appointed hour, I gave orders that no one should be admitted except the gentleman expected. My sisters were not at home. Aunt Mary, that indefatigable chaperone, had gone with them to the skating rink. I placed myself in my little drawing room, in a pretty house dress of violet velvet. Violet, it is allowed, suits blonde complexions, took a book in my hand, and waited. I had not to wait long. At ten minutes past two, Freyherr V. Tilling entered. You see, Countess, I have punctually availed myself of your permission, he said, kissing my hand. Luckily so, I answered laughingly, as I showed him a chair. Otherwise, I should have died of impatience, for really you have thrown me into a state of great suspense. Then I will say what I have got to say at once, without any long introduction. The reason I did not do so yesterday was in order not to disturb your serenity. You frighten me. In one word, I was present at the Battle of Magenta. And you saw Arno die? I shrieked. Yes. I am in a position to give you information about his last moments. Speak, I said, shuddering. Do not tremble, Countess. If those last moments had been as horrible as those of so many other of my comrades, I would assuredly had said nothing about it to you. 
for there is nothing sadder than to hear of a dear one dead, that he died in agony. But this is not the case here. You take a weight off my heart. Go on with your narrative. I will not repeat to you the empty phrase with which the survivors of soldiers are usually comforted. He died like a hero. For I do not quite know what that means, but I can offer you the substantial consolation that he died without thinking about death. He was convinced from the beginning that nothing could happen to him. We were much together, and he often told me of his domestic happiness, showed me the picture of his beautiful young wife and of his child. He invited me, as soon as ever the campaign was over, to visit him in his home. In the massacre of Magenta, I found myself, by accident, at his side. I spare you the sketches of the scenes that were going on. One cannot relate such things. Men, who have the warrior spirit, are seized in the midst of the powder fog and bullet rain with such an intoxication that they do not know exactly what is going on. Dotsky was a man of this kind. His eyes sparkled. He laid about him with a firm hand. He was in the full intoxication of war. I, who was sober, could see it. Then came a shell and fell a few steps from where we were. When the monster burst, ten men were blown to pieces, Dotsky among them. There rose a shriek of anguish from the injured men, but Dotsky gave no cry. He was dead. I, and a few of my comrades, stooped down to see the wounded and give them aid if possible. But it was not possible. They were all writhing in death, terribly torn and dismembered, the prey of horrible tortures. But Dotsky, at whose side I first knelt on the ground, breathed no more. His heart had stopped beating, and out of his torn side, the blood was flowing in such a stream that if even his state was only faintness and not death, there was no fear that he would come to again. Fear? I said, weeping. Yes, for we had to leave him lying there helpless. Before us, the murderous hurrah burst out again, and behind us, mounted squadrons were coming on, who must charge over these dying men. Lucky those who had lost consciousness. His face had a perfectly placid, painless look. And when, after the battle was over, we picked up our dead and wounded, I found him on the same spot, in the same position, and with the same peaceful look. That is what I had to say to you, Countess. I might indeed have done so years since, or, even if I had never met you, have written it to you. But the idea only came into my head yesterday, 
when my cousin said she was expecting among her guests the beautiful widow of Arno Trotsky. Forgive me if I have recalled painful memories. I think, however, I have discharged a duty and freed you from torturing doubts. He stood up. I gave him my hand. I thank you, Baron Tilling, I said, drying my tears. You have indeed conferred a precious gift on me, the tranquility of knowing that the end of my dear husband was free from pain or torment. But stay a little, I beg you. I should like to hear you speak more. You struck a note in your way of expressing yourself before, which made a certain chord vibrate in my feelings. Without beating around the bush, you abhor war? Tilling's visage clouded. Forgive me, Countess, he said. If I cannot stop to talk with you on this subject, I am sorry, too, that I cannot prolong our interview. I am expected elsewhere. It was now my countenance which assumed a cold expression. The princess, I suppose, was expecting him. And the thought was unpleasant to me. Then I will not detain you, Colonel, I said coldly. Without any request to be allowed to come again, he bowed and left the room. End of section 10